Caro, and welcome to episode 84 of Caro Pop. Tickets are now on sale for a Caro Pop live event. My July 31st onstage conversation with actor, singer, director Michael Shannon at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois. Go to evanstonspace.com for more information and to buy tickets. Our Carol Pop guest this week is Devo lead guitarist Bob Mothersbaugh, a.k.a. Bob One. Bob belongs to one of the band's two sets of brothers and one set of Bobs. Bob's older brother is Devo co-founder and frontman Mark Mothersbaugh. The classic lineup also included the Casali brothers, Gerald, who shared most of the songwriting and singing duties with Mark Mothersbaugh, and Bob, a.k.a. Bob Two, who played keyboards and rhythm guitar. Drummer Alan Myers didn't have a brother in the band, but when he joined, he was replacing Jim Mothersbaugh, Bob's and Mark's younger brother. What was life like when the Mothersbaugh brothers were growing up in Akron, Ohio? Were they a musical family from the start? How did Bob pick up guitar and start playing with Mark, and eventually Devo? Years before the 1978 release of its debut album, Devo recorded an especially woozy cover of the Johnny Rivers hit Secret Agent Man with Bob One singing. Secret! along with an early take of Jocko Homo, wound up in Devo's short 1976 film, In the Beginning Was the End, The Truth About De-Evolution. They used to screen that short before concerts. You should track it down on YouTube. Secret Agent Man resurfaced in a less freaky version, with Bob still singing on Devo's second album, Duty Now for the Future. Secret Agent Man Secret Agent Man David Bowie became smitten with Devo and almost produced the first album. Bob explains how Brian Eno wound up taking the reins. Although Devo has a reputation for being a synth band, the debut album, Q, Are We Not Men, A, We Are Devo, is a pile-driving guitar album with Bob One's playing out front. Bob has co-songwriting credits on Gut Feeling, which is one of the great guitar intros of all time, plus Space Junk, Sloppy, and Shrivel Up. What was the band's dynamic like back then? How did Mark Mothersbaugh and Jerry Casali introduce songs to the band so everyone could shape them? Bob Mothersbaugh co-wrote three more songs for Duty Now for the Future, Wiggly World, Pink Pussycat, and Blockhead, and tells an excellent origin story about that last one. He is writing credits on some later songs too, such as Cold War on Freedom of Choice and Through Being Cool on New Traditionalists. But Mark and Jerry were the dominant songwriters going forward. Something also changed in how they were conceiving and presenting the songs and how the songs were being performed. How did Bob feel about being the guitarist in a band moving deeper and deeper into electronics? What was the surprising change in direction that Mark and Jerry decided to pursue for Devo's third album, Freedom of Choice? Did the band expect With It to be its breakout hit? What dark impact did the new fame and fortune have on Devo's members, particularly Bob One? As the band became more reliant upon sequencers, drummer Alan Myers left, and Bob has some feelings about that period as well. He plays guitar on the 2010 comeback album, Something for Everybody, but did he enjoy that music and that experience? Let him tell it. And what's the state of Devo now? Bob Casali died in 2014, and Alan Myers died the previous year. The band has continued on, but when Gerald Casali was a Carol Pop guest last summer, he wasn't shy about expressing his frustrations with Mark Mothersbaugh. Have fences been mended before the band travels to Europe in August? What does Bob One remember as the peak Devo experience? You'll hear all that and more in this Carol Pop conversation with Bob Mothersbaugh. Are you in your your studio? Is it your basement studio or? It's um, Utano's basement studio. Nice. <laughs> so that's you and Mark, and it's it's where you guys work on soundtracks and stuff, right? Yeah, it's a building on Sunset Boulevard. When you were growing up, at some point there were three mothers' bows in Devo. Yeah. Were you guys like this musical family when you were growing up? Did you put on like little music shows in the living room and stuff? No, but we, every Saturday, we had to take piano lessons from the uh, the organist at church, Mrs. Fox, and she would come and like, whoever was old enough would have to take lessons. So we got indoctrinated into music pretty early. And uh, 
my dad was wanted to be a clarinetist when he was younger. So he was really into like Dixieland jazz. He would make all the kids clean up the house while J- Dixieland jazz was blaring out of the speakers. And, uh, <laughs> so we got a lot of, a lot of musical influences. So is this in Akron? Yes. In Akron. So how much did kind of being in, in Akron, do you feel like shape your musical sensibilities and just like, and just where you grew up as far as shaping it, it just, when we were Devo, we played for a couple of years, just in Akron, you know, we weren't like critiqued and uh, panned for a bad performance or something. We were allowed to experiment for a couple of years before we started going to New York. Right. You were all learning piano. At some point you picked up the guitar. Was it, was it sort of clear that each of you had your own sort of talents and interests? Not clear, just, <laughs> you know, I uh, I started out playing keyboard in a band for one day, but I just wasn't really good enough at it. So I started playing bass and I would play with Mark a lot. Uh, he was into organ, organ players that just had like a bassist or something. And he and I would jam a lot. And then uh, he was in a band. And the guitar player had an extra guitar that he let Mark bring home and play with. And I just started playing with that and found out that that's what I liked. Do you remember what kind of guitar it was? It was the Gretsch hollow body electric. Yeah. The the George Harrison model. Might have been. (laughs) Were there, were there guitarists that you admired? Like, were you like, uh, or was it more just, I just enjoy playing this. Well, I liked Keith Richard a lot, uh, Chuck Berry, you know, I kind of started with Keith and then went backwards to Chuck Berry. Right. Uh, as, as, as did Keith. <laughs> I met Keith once in, uh, in the eighties at a club in New York. And I was so nervous. I told him that next to me, he was the best guitar player in the world. <laughs> You know, of course, for the next week, I went, why did I do that? Why did I do that? Well, what did he say? Oh, good attitude. <laughs> See, that's all right. Yeah. Was Mark always someone who was a songwriter or was he, were you guys playing sort of in cover I bands? Think he, first, was. he was. I mean, he, he learned to copy all any style he heard and play it perfectly. So, yeah, he probably was writing stuff. He had an organ band. It was just getting bass and drums or something i imagine he wrote stuff for that i can't remember uh and then i had a rock and roll band that we wrote some songs started writing songs actually in high school i don't know how this happened but in some class you were allowed to go do what do a project that that's like what you wanted to do when you grew up so i went to a recording studio and made up a song and played guitar and bass on it Wow. Yeah, it was horrible. But what was the song? I don't remember. There was no lyrics. I'm not really a good lyricist. <laughs> Just a so couple we, guitar parts and a bass. Did it sound like anything in particular? Like, were you trying to sound like sort of an old surf instrumental or was it, you know, based on something else? It was a little bit surf instrumental, a little bit early who. I kind of liked uh, Peter Townsend's Choppy Chords. But it was just two parts that just kept repeating. And it was my first time in a studio, even though it was just like a little tiny basement, somebody's house, Dave Metz, who was a radio repairman, but also had a studio. I have no idea if there's any version of that anywhere in the world, but I hope not. Wow. No, that would be good. It could be a record store day single or something. (laughs) Nah, you'd change your mind if you heard it. Oh, you never know. Do you remember the first record you ever bought? I don't like to tell people this. Good. It was the Singing Nuns, a 45 of the Singing Nuns singing I was very young. <laughs> I had a little, I had a, a dollar in my pocket and went to the music store. <laughs> so you, you brought it home and said, look what I got. Yeah. Did you and Mark and did you have like similar musical tastes in general growing up or did you sort of veer off in different ways? 
early on, Mark and I used to sit down in the basement on the pile of dirty clothes and he would put records on. Like I remember the kinks and uh, Eric Burden and the animals. And I can't remember who else, but he, we, we, yeah, we just listened to everything. And your brother, Jim was, was he the original drummer in Devo? And what was his sort of role in all of this? Uh, you know, your musical family growing up. Uh, well, the rock and roll band I had, he was in it with me. We were writing songs and playing around town. I don't know. He 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 liked drums, even though he had taken a lot of piano lessons. Why did he not stick with the band, with Devo? That is. Well, there was a period where we were down in the basement in Akron, and nothing was happening. We would play like once a year, and he just said, "You know, I gotta I gotta like make some money." So he started a, a musical instrument repair shop. And just kind of fell out. And I think I think maybe Jerry is a hard person to work with. I think he kind of intimidated him, Jim, a little bit. Yeah. So tell me about like when you first sort of hooked up with Jerry and how and obviously, you know, Devo wasn't just a band. It was also a concept. So did you was it sort of a matter of getting getting along musically, but also sort of signing on to this, you know, vision that had to do with the presentation and the ideas and all of that? I worked a day job and save money and bought amplifiers for my band, the rock and roll band. So I had a couple guitar amps and a bass amp. And at some point, Mark and Jerry just came and said, Hey, why don't you be the guitar player for Devo? And I think they just wanted to use the amps. They wanted like real amps, but uh, I had gone to see them and it was like, Oh, this is different. Uh, they played somewhere in Kent at uh, you know, a little tiny, tiny uh, student dorm, theater or something and it didn't make me say okay i gotta quit what i'm doing and join devo but when they asked me to play i i went okay so what did you think of those early years i mean you i'm it was relatively out there by the time you know the album came out but that's in sort of the scheme of like rock music and pop music but but when you look listen to like the early stuff it, i mean it was very much more out there like like how did you feel about all of that well there wasn't a lot to do in akron and, you know, it's like arena rock was was out of the question. There was no way we were sure. ever going to be able to do it or, you know, and we didn't want to. So we just did what, what whatever made us laugh, you know, just like being ridiculous, not ridiculous, but just like trying anything. When I was, you know, do, going down one of these YouTube rabbit holes, I watched this video or film of you guys doing secret agent man and i think it's from like 75 or something like that which is you know one of your big vocal so showcases um but it was it was it was an even sort of stranger you know woozier version of that than the one that's on duty now for the future because you guys had that that was on the second album you know satisfaction was on the first album but secret agent man goes back a while i mean was that the first sort of prominent cover you guys were doing or did you do a lot more at the in those early days uh that was the first prominent cover and it wasn't you know it wasn't really much of a cover <laughs> it was a hint of a cover so why that song? Was it was that a song that you just loved or is just sort of fun to play along with and it just sort of came out? I'm not sure why. I have no idea. And how much did you were you singing back then? Cuz you cuz you don't do a lot of leads, but that was one of them. If you listen to the hardcore album, I sing more on that than I do on you know any of the Warner Brother albums. Right. So why was that? What did you did you move away from singing on purpose or well, this is another thing that I don't really know. It just kind of happened. There was nobody sat down and said, let's do this. But it was Jerry used to sing most of the songs. And like when I went to see them in Kent, Jerry sang the majority of the songs. And Mark just wore a, a monkey mask the whole time. <laughs> then some somewhere when we were down in the basement, uh, Mark started singing more. And it was like, OK, you sing them. So I don't know. Maybe one night I was feeling... Like, yeah, I need to sing something. I don't know. I don't remember, but it's, yeah, it's, it just evolved kind of organically. What was the dynamic like between, you know, Jerry and Mark, Mark back then, just in terms of playing and also them, you know, writing songs and bringing them in and whatever form, you know, they would introduce them to you guys. And 
Well, there's a big rift between the two of them now. And looking back, I see that it was there for a long time, but I didn't even, I didn't notice any rift when we first started. It was all teamwork. It was like somebody would play something and somebody else would go, oh yeah, put this with it. And, and everybody was like, yeah, let's, that's what we want. If, have you been in a band? It's not really. No. Well, yeah. It just, you know, when you're in a room with three other people, things just come out when you're just there for hours. So was it more like early on sort of this organic thing where you guys would just, you know, be in the room trying to create stuff together. And then later it became, you know, okay, I just, I wrote this and I'm bringing this in and here's the demo for you to listen to, or here's the song I'm going to play for you on my guitar and have you guys figure oh, right. out. Right. Yeah. No, it was always more organic. Uh, Jerry had a song called auto mow down. And one day we were, we were, my brother and I were in the basement. He was playing drums and I was playing guitar. And I started, instead of just going, do, 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 or something like that, I started playing chords and stuff. And Mark and Jerry were upstairs and they ran down and Mark immediately started going, and Jerry started singing his song. And it was like, oh, there. <laughs> did, did that feel like the first sort of organic Devo song in a way? It kind of hinted at something else. Most of the Devo songs were more single notes. Uh, it, it felt a little more fleshed out. Yeah. What was the first Devo song where you thought, oh, this is a great song? Well, that's a tough question. Well, now this is embarrassing because I remember the song, but I don't remember the name. Do, 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 bow, down, 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 bow, down, 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 down. I'm trying to name that tune. But because I got to just like play crazy lead guitar that was a sort of, sort of in my rock and roll vein. And it was just a lot of fun. Well, it's interesting because Devo became known as a more electronic band, but certainly that first album is is a real guitar album. Um, I mean, did you feel like, you know, in the early days you were you were the guitarist in a guitar band? Well, in the early days, no, I was just one instrument. It just happened to be guitar. Like we used to play shows where we would just had one amp and a little a TX four track mixing board. And we would all plug into the mixing board. Like I could use my amp, just the head. I could just plug the head into it and we would just come out of one, one amp on stage. And, uh, you know, it was just, we were just all four, we just four parts. When, when we, when it came to the first album by then, we started playing like a real band when, when Jim had left for a while. And I, I brought in Alan to play drums and Bob Casale came back. It's like, I always, you know, I, I love guitar and the sound of guitar. And so it was, it was kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, you guys are a really hot band on that record. I mean, you know, I think that people sort of, I don't know. I think, I think that anyone who sort of goes back and listens to that first album who, who sort of knows you from the electronic later stuff, which is also great, but you'd be like, Oh, they were actually like a very rocking band at the time. Gut feeling has one of my favorite like intros of like any song ever. Just that, that guitar that just sort of keeps, you know, sort of building and building and building. Do you remember how that came about? Because I assume that's you doing that that riff that just sort of keeps cycling through. No, I'm actually playing the other part. I just we were at the time that was written. I think we were rehearsing in a it was a little cinder block building next to a car wash that one of Mark's friends owned, and we were allowed to rehearse in his cinder block building. And I was just playing those five chords. I thought it was fun just because it wasn't four chords. You know, it was like. It was fun to add an extra chord in. And then Mark just started singing over it. And Bob, yeah, Bob too came up with the actual picking part. It takes so long to get going and it's just it's it's really exciting. And then and then you just have that great first line from Mark where like something about the way you taste makes me want to clear my throat, which is just one of the funnier first lines of any song ever, I think. Yes. Yes, it made us laugh. At what point did sort of the, the the costumes and uniforms and visual presentation become a key part of it? And how did you feel about that? I was okay with it. I I we experimented a lot. Um, you know, we wore those blue suits on stage, the kind of fireman's jumpsuits, the light blue suits. 
that are in some of the early videos. Right. One time I found this safety pin, like a giant safety pin, like about a six inch long safety pin. And I said to Jerry, oh, we could like wear diapers on stage. So we actually <laughs> took towels and we bought a bunch of those safety pins and like safety pinned the towels on like diapers. And we're playing somewhere like at the crypt in Akron. And it was like after two songs, it was like, oh, shoot, we're going to be up here for another 45 minutes in these. This is <laughs> like it was one of those ones where we only did it once. But, you know, we were we were up to trying things. And this is this goes back to like what I said, where we got to like hone everything down before we got out of Akron. Because Mark and Jerry had this silk screening company and they silk screened signs for uh, an industrial supply company and that's where they found those yellow suits on a on a shelf in the place and somebody grabbed some brought them home and, and we wore those at a show and those did stick yes they did so what were you what was your thinking as a band at the time were you guys thinking oh we want to be like a really popular rock band or were you thinking we want to be a really interesting sort of art experiment like what was the what was the goal at that point uh for me personally i was just having fun he i'm sure if you talk to jerry he's he's told you what what he was thinking growing up i knew i was going to play on big stages i just kind of i kind of like knew it i mean i was a shy kid and i don't know how i could have thought something like that but i did hmm but, you know, when we started playing, it was fine if we were playing at, at a club in Akron for 15 of our friends. We were just playing, having fun. What did you get out of those performances? Well, there's something about getting on stage and playing in front of people. It's just it's just magical. Did it make you see your brother in a different way? Because Mark became again, and as you mentioned, that Jerry was sort of sitting singing more, and Mark really became the focal point, uh, you know, on stage. And mm -hmm. you know, I wonder growing up with him if you, you know, if you're like, oh, I, you know, that's totally Mark, or whether you're like, wow, I didn't, I didn't see that part of his personality until he kind of came alive doing this on stage in this band. Uh, the second one, I think, yeah, he became a different Mark, but it didn't happen overnight. So it wasn't like I ever said, oh, wow. You know, it just it was organic. It just kind of went that way. You guys had the support early on of people like David Bowie and Neil Young. Were you starstruck by any of these encounters? Like, what did you think of sort of ending up in those circles? Totally starstruck. It was like, <laughs> it was like I couldn't speak. Actually, we we recorded everything back in Akron and we had like hours of demo tapes. And I, my girlfriend drove me up to Cleveland to see, uh, Iggy Pop and David Bowie was playing keyboards for him. And of course, there's only one big, it was one big hotel that all the rock bands stayed at, Swingo's. So we went there to the bar afterwards and David Bowie came down and sat in the booth right next to us. So I, I was holding this demo tape and finally my girlfriend took it and gave it to David Bowie. I was like, I couldn't get two words out. Wow. So starstruck. So was that how he discovered you guys was because your girlfriend gave him the tape? She gave him a tape, which he took back to Germany and threw in a box. And then Iggy Pop was listening to all, all these tapes in that box. And he went, oh, my God, you got to hear this one. This can't be a real band. And he, he like David listened to it. And then they heard we were playing in New York. Oh, no, I think Iggy came to see us in Los Angeles first at uh, the Whiskey. And then we went to New York to play a show and David Bowie asked if he'd come and introduce us. And you guys were like, sure. <laughs> you can do anything you want, David. What was on that tape? The hardcore stuff and then weird stuff, you know, from basement recordings. And at some point he was going to maybe produce the first album, right? And then it ended up being his, you know, buddy Brian Eno. He was going to produce the first album, but... At the last minute, he said, oh, I just got offered this job in Berlin, acting job. So why don't you guys record in Cologne at Connie Plank Studio and we'll get David Bowie to come in and kind of co-produce it. So we said, OK, we love David Bowie. I mean, we love Brian Eno, too. So we went over there 
And somewhere during the recordings, we got the contract from Buley Brothers, which was David Bowie's company. And they wanted like 50% of everything forever. So we had, you know, we were like, oh, my God, we can't sign this. Right. So Brian Eno said, look, this is only costing $10,000. i will pay the $10,000. Warner Brothers can pay me back and I'll, I'll be the producer. So we went, yeah. So what do you remember uh, most about Brian Eno's work on that record in collaboration with you guys? Oh, I love Brian Eno. And I love all his stuff, especially his solo albums. Uh, the first two solo albums. But uh, sure. when we were there, he... You know, we had been playing for several years, playing the same songs, and we were really tight. He said, okay, guys, just set up and play play a song. And we they had this crazy tape recorder that was 40 tracks, a 40-track Stevens multi-track tape recorder. So he would take tracks and, like, add effects and record them on separate tracks. And the effects weren't even, you know, most of them were like little pedals, but he would put effects on each instrument and record them over here. And we'd come in and listen to the song after we played it. And he'd put in his effects and we'd just be like, uh, no, no, take that one out. Take that one out. Take, we just, <laughs> we just wanted to sound like what we did live. Uh, so he was kind of hamstrung. In the end, did that album sound like you guys thought you sounded or did it sound, you know, esque? Pretty much it sounded like us. He did some stuff where he sang uh, the background on Uncontrollable Urge. You know, he's got an uncontrollable urge. I think he and David both sang on that. Really? Uh, I, didn't know, I didn't know David Bowie was on that. I think he did. I, that's, I think that's what Mark told me. Wow. I mean, I was there. I don't remember. I was probably in the, in the house, like, <laughs> at the time. But there are subtle influences. Brian had subtle influences on the album. Do you remember at the end of that process, just hearing the album and thinking, wow, this is our first album. And do you remember sort of what your reaction to it was? I loved it. It, it, it was delayed because of uh, Warner Brothers and Virgin Records having a, some lawsuit because we, we tried to get out of the Warner Brothers deal to sign with Virgin. But uh, when it came out, it was announced. I was back in L.A. and they announced that they were going to play the Devo's first album from start to finish on K-Rock. Mm. So I just jumped in my car and just started driving with the radio up all the way. And it was, <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't kill somebody or get get uh, pulled over for speeding because I just drove all over L.A. for that 45 minutes just going, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, my introduction, which was probably a lot of people's introduction, and I was like, what, like 14 or something like that, was seeing you guys on Saturday Night Live. Um, and uh, I think that the Rolling Stones had been the musical guest the first week of the season, and then and then you guys were the second week, and I was like, what is this? Um, and I thought it was really cool, And and but I remember you playing Satisfaction and Jocko Homo, and... Uh, what was that like for you? Uh, you know, again, you're stepping into the, the onto that stage that Rolling Stones had played on the week before. Band from Akron doing your stuff. We were a great band. We were really tight and very confident. But you know, I mean, we we're still kids. I remember calling my mom like between songs back in Akron. Going, did you see that? Did you see that? We're going to do one more. Um, and I remember. We played a little bit slow. We weren't quite so stiff looking, but when Lauren Michaels came up and said, okay, guys, 10, 9, 8, remember, 40 million people are watching and they want to be entertained. Two, one, go. <laughs> we just kind of like stiffened up and like really, really exaggerated robotic moves. He really <laughs> said that? Yes. Like, what was the purpose of him saying that? Like, to to get you guys feeling better about things? Like, that seems a little counterintuitive. Like, oh, if you want to scare the crap no out idea. of him, it's I funny. Have no idea, but it scared the hell out of me. Did you, when you did uh, the second song, Jocko Homo, did you feel, did, was that different because you'd already done it once and now you could just sort of loosen up a little bit? Yeah. 
it, we we had played those songs so much it was just muscle memory like you didn't even have to think about playing I saw you a bunch of times and you could find this all on YouTube and I recommend people out there listening that you do this. Uh, you guys played a bunch of times on Fridays and there's some awesome uh, performances from you on the show Fridays. What was, what was the vibe on Fridays like compared to Saturday Night Live? Well, Saturday Night Live was like the pinnacle of a band being on TV. It's like, it doesn't get any better than that. Fridays was like kind of a wannabe Saturday Night Live. Right. So it it was like, okay, we're just, we do what we do. It was no big deal. Larry David was in the cast back then. I don't know. They should like get you guys on Curb Your Enthusiasm now or something. <laughs> when you went to do the second album, Duty Now for the Future, the producer was Ken Scott, another guy who'd worked with David Bowie. Gerald Casali had sort of complained about um, the sound of that record. Uh, I was talking to Brad Wood, uh, producer, uh, and he's, he considers Duty Now for the Future one of the five greatest albums ever made, a foundational work, and thinks Jerry's totally wrong about the sound of it. He thinks it sounds great. What what do you think of it? Well, see, you know, that's where we were really lucky having Brian Eno produce the first record because he didn't, he was just subtle in what he did. He let the band be the band, the second album doesn't really set, feel like a band sometimes. You know, we did do record things separately. We kind of did basic tracks together. I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to say when the album didn't sell that well. It's like you can come up with a lot of reasons why, but. Uh, Were you guys playing more sort of live and together with Eno than you did with Ken Scott? Yeah, it was a small little recording studio in Germany. It was like we were in the barn. And with Ken Scott, the, the studio was much bigger. And I think I didn't even use speakers. I think my my amp head, you know, just went right into the board. It was a little less organic feeling. Right. Were most of those songs ones that you'd had in your repertoire before you recorded the first album? Yeah. Yeah, they were the ones that that weren't good enough to be on the first album. <laughs> They're still pretty <laughs> great, but it's, 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 it's definitely an odd record, but, uh, but there's a lot of great stuff on it. And it's also sort of feels a little transitional because are we not men is more just guitar record and, you know, duty now is, it's, it's more the synths and electronics are kind of coming in. Um, and then freedom of choice. The next album is it's like, you got your, you know, you got Alan Myers drums and he was really, a beast of a drummer and you know she maybe was. you know under recognized for like what a key part of that sound was because he really pushed the beat it was not like any sort of mechanized beat you know he really propels the thing forward and then you have you you on the guitar still um how did you feel sort of being the main guitarist in a band that was sort of moving away from those sort of organic instruments yeah i can't remember how i felt i just i just love playing guitar and I had a new guitar that I got from Ibanez, that Blue Cloud guitar. So it was really fun playing with that guitar. They were good songs and it was fun playing them. What did you see your role as as guitarist? Like, like there's some guitarists in a band and it's like, okay, I'm going to stand in the spotlight and do this big solo and be a virtuoso. And, and obviously it's not what you were doing. You were sort of coming up with these sort of perfect parts to fit with these other parts like how did the sort of how did it work for you in terms of you know becoming part of the sound and being so essential to it well you know a, a good example is george harrison who was a great guitar player but he just played little bits little leads in the middle in the middle of a song or something that were like completely tasteful you know i i, I like that kind of play i didn't like i went to see cream when i was a kid and it bored the heck out of me just okay, more guitar lead, more guitar lead. Here comes the bass solo. Here comes the drum solo. <laughs> but uh, you know, so I, I liked I liked short and concise. We I loved the Ramones. I mean, their leads were just like two bars or something. And right. the Sex Pistols first album. I love Steve Jones's leads because they weren't they weren't. It wasn't like guitar gods it was just like really tasteful well-placed stuff and that, that's what i liked 
can't remember what song I was listening to yesterday. It might have been Girl You Want, which obviously has like the, you know, that central riff to it. But there were other like these like little guitar, sort of sneaky guitar parts that sort of come in, you know, at points where, where like you're listening, like, oh, that's a cool little little thing you just kind of snuck in there between, you know, this other, you know, these other little keyboard things. Like you were kind of picking your spot and doing the cool little extra. Yeah. Yeah. I like that kind of stuff. It's, you know, I wasn't trying to dominate the song. I just wanted to make it good and play what I liked. For the album Freedom of Choice, was there sort of a conscious feeling of, okay, we're going to make like a poppier record after the last the last album that maybe wasn't as well received and maybe was a little more out there? Well, Mark and Jerry said they always say that they talked with our manager and said they were going to do an R&B style record. But I guess they didn't talk to me about that because I, I was just playing with like what, what was there. That's an R&B style record. That's what they said. You'll have to get Jerry back on. Ask him about that. There you go. I don't really think of like whip it and girl you want and freedom of choice being R&B, but maybe there, maybe there's some, some roots in there or something. When you were recording any of those songs or, you know, did you think, Oh, this is, this is going to be our breakthrough hit. We, yeah, we thought girl you want was going to be the hit. And we actually got Roy Thomas Baker to remix it as a single. And Warner Brothers put a bunch of money into promoting it as the single from the album, which it wasn't. It's such a catchy song. And I thought Whip It was fun. And then at some point, every hour I was hearing Whip, whip It on the radio. <laughs> did, did, that, did that surprise you that that song just leapt out like that? It surprised everybody. It was kind of just a filler song. It, nobody had any pretensions of big hit for whip it and everybody was taken by surprise apparently it started down in florida at disco clubs gay discos where they started playing whip it and then it just like spread throughout the u.s i remember our manager just would just keep saying oh my god it's number one it's doing this it's doing that it's everybody's playing it and we went good did that song being such a big hit change devo in a fundamental way well, yeah. Yeah. I don't know for everybody else, but for me, we made, we didn't make that much money on Whip It, but, you know, I immediately went out and bought cocaine. <laughs> had you had it before or was that just sort of like, a, oh, now I can afford this. I can afford an expensive habit. Yeah, I'd had it before, but yeah, I could actually buy more than a quarter of a gram or something. <laughs> Was that an issue in the band in general, like substances or whatever else become more of an issue after you guys became really, really popular? Yeah. 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 Everybody at some point or other went off the deep end with drugs. Uh, I kind of took it further than anybody else, which is why I sighed when I told you about it. But uh, we kind of became who we were, big rock stars. And how long a period did that sort of cover? Like, was that sort of the rest of like your 80s Devo hood? Yeah. And do you think that affected sort of your creativity and ability to be together and make albums? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody hung out with anybody else. Um, and of course, it, it was a whole, it was a confluence of things. It's like Mark got uh, sequencers that he would write songs completely on sequencer and then he put me in the room with a guitar and amp. He go, "Okay, play guitar on it." I'd be like, "Wait, what?" And you know, he would just put it on repeat. Like for ten minutes, I would have to sit there and just trying to figure out the chords and the structure of the song and then notes. And it's like, where is there room for a guitar on this? And of course, Mark and Jerry were both saying, "Guitars will be obsolete. Future will be all synthesizers. Guitars will be obsolete." So it was just like. You know, of course, I was like, okay, well, instead of coming to practice, I'll just go take cocaine or it's yeah, I think it affected the band because it wasn't the band that we were back in Akron at all. Right. Well, and also when you start moving more into drum machines, you're you're giving Alan Myers uh, less to do, um, which. Yeah. You know, and, and he he eventually left. Yeah. So early on, you guys are sitting around in a room and you're coming up with stuff. By the time you're, you know, you're doing new traditionalists and oh no, it's Devo. Was it more like, you know, Mark would come in with something he's already created on his, you know, sequencer, and then Jerry would come in with something he's already demoed, or did anyone just yeah. play live something? Like, how did that work? 
Yeah, no, there was no organic, like, let's just pick up instruments and play. It was just work to me, you know, like, like just at the factory, putting stuff together. Was New Traditionals also, was there sort of a sense of, I don't know, reacting or even rebelling against the fact that you guys had had this huge hit? I mean, the first song on that was the single, I think you co-wrote it, was uh, Through Being Cool. It's like, sort of like, yeah, we're, we're done. We're done with that now. Uh, no. I think we're not, get... we're not cool. We're not going to be cool anymore. You guys. <laughs> no, we, uh, once you get a taste of success, you really want more. That was just supposed to be a song that people would like and buy. <laughs> Wiggly World with Jerry and Blockhead and Pink Pussycat with Mark. What were those like sort of co-writes like, you know, when you were working with you know, either one of them? Well, like Blockhead, it was in, of course, it was recorded in, originally written in a basement in Akron where, you know, I just wanted to write something that wasn't 4-4. I think it was like 11-4 or 11-8 or something like that. Weird time signature. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Yeah, it's 11. I wrote that and was playing it. And then Mark came down and started. He goes, oh, you got lyrics for that? And I go, no, but I was kind of thinking of that commercial, that sinus medicine commercial where the person had the blockhead. Hmm. And I was going to call it blockhead. So Mark came up with lyrics for blockhead. One of my daughters especially loved that song. She loved the 90-degree angles. <laughs> that was Mark. So, and what about co-writing with Jerry? Was that a different sort of process? Wiggly World, I had been, I was watching a sitcom. And like after a, a kind of humorous incident, it went, <laughs> strings or, or clarinets or something. So I, I just started playing on the guitar for a while and then, Jerry came in. I said, listen to this. Let's use this in a song. There's a clip from you guys being on, and it was touted as your first appearance on a talk show. And it was on the Mike Douglas show. And you guys mimed uh, Whip It. And then you were all sort of sitting in these chairs, but they had... Jerry was between Mike Douglas and John Schneider from the Dukes of Hazard, And they said, and they referred to him as the spokesman for the band. Was that generally the way it was perceived among you at that time that Jerry just sort of talked for everyone? He usually did. He's very concise and uh, almost like he could be really, he would have, would have been really good on a debate team. Right. Uh, and so it's like, you know, nobody wants to hear me sitting there going, yeah, I just like to play guitar. <laughs> I just want to have fun playing guitar. So I let him, we, you know, we let him talk. And the, the more we did that, the more he became the smoke spokesman. Was there, you know, any sort of growing rivalry between him and Mark, just in terms of being in the spotlight and being recognized and writing, you know, whatever songs they were writing? Uh, I'm sure there was. I, I didn't notice it at the time, but I'm sure there was. Late, late, much later on, it starts to become real apparent where they both have right. their own own lawyers and stuff. But uh, any memories of recording Oh No, It's Devo with Roy Thomas Baker, who I didn't realize had come in and also mixed the single of Girl You Want. But on one hand, that was like a very electronic record. On the other hand, it sounds really good. I was I was like that record, actually. But it is definitely more in that electronic realm than certainly than even Freedom of Choice. yeah. Oh, yeah, much more. Um, no, I don't have any good rec recollections of that. Uh... <laughs> you guys aren't all sitting around in a circle playing live on that album just because there's so much electronic stuff, I would imagine. Right. No, not playing live at all. What was I'm going to skip ahead to when you guys did something for everybody. The uh, comeback album from what was it 2011. I should know that off the top of my head. Was that a fun thing to come back and do together? I'd seen you previously in Chicago at the Vic and you did the two nights of are we not men and freedom of choice. And then you'd sort of been sort of dribbling out some of the new stuff at that time. So it seemed like there was this kind of resurgence of Devo as a creative force at that point. It wasn't like it was, you know, and it just went farther and farther away from what it was that I liked. Uh, I still like playing guitar. 
And I kind of, you know, I still like my bandmates. I didn't really like the music that much, but that's what it was. Like were Mark and Jerry working together on it? Was it, or was it like, okay, here's a Mark song. Here's a Jerry song. I'm just going to do what I can do. Truthfully, I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't really involved that much in the songwriting. But like even the recording of it, like were, were you guys together when you recorded stuff or was it always like just sort of one person coming in at a time? Uh, oh, we were always all there. There's been this documentary called Are We Not Men that's gonna was going to maybe come out. And then supposedly, you know, Jerry was complaining that Mark was blocking it from coming out. Have you seen this thing? Do you know anything about it? Is it going to ever come out? Parts of it might be on the new documentary we're doing. Uh, I never watched it. I didn't like the guy who was making it. Leave it at that. <laughs> I saw I saw a Reddit post of someone who'd seen an early cut of it and was saying that like there's like all this stuff about like Jerry's sex life in it and stuff. And uh, he wasn't sure why that was in there. But I don't know whether that has anything to do with you guys not wanting it out. But yeah, probably <laughs> does. <laughs> what is the state of Devo right now? Are you guys going to do more shows together? Yeah, we have uh, about 15 dates in Europe in August. And then maybe even more shows in the U.S. in November. There was a time where Mark and Jerry were fighting and Mark was making more money scoring movies. And he didn't want to go out on tour for a long time. You know, there was a dearth of Devo shows around the world. But uh, recently... He's changed his mind and decided he likes playing. He Maybe he realized we're getting old. We better do it now <laughs> before somebody else dies. But yeah, we're, we've got a lot of shows lined up. Is that something you look forward to? Yeah. You know, and most of the day it's work until you get on stage and uh, you just have fun for an hour and a half. We're going to some some countries we I've never been to. I think we've never been to Finland. I can't remember. But is it, we're going back to, to playing shows in places that I haven't been in decades. So, yeah, it'll be fun. Put the energy domes back on. One last time, yeah. <laughs> so when you get, we're doing that, like, and you're touring together, does everyone get along okay? I mean, is everyone, like, in a separate bus? Or how does that, like, what's the dynamic now? Uh... <laughs> There's always something that a couple people in the band can find to fight about, but we kind of get along, you know, I mean, I don't, people don't sit right next to each other at the airports or at a, or whatever. We don't share hotel rooms. <laughs> uh, I think we everybody's reached an understanding where we can get along. Are you, are you working with Mark on Mutato stuff in the meantime? I mostly do my own shows. We we have done some collaborations on songs. We did something for a SpongeBob movie. Wrote a, Mark and I wrote a song together. Um, oh, Plankton. We wrote a Plankton song. And we wrote something for uh, Matt Groening's cartoon. Wrote a song, Underwater Mermaid, Orgy. <laughs> but mostly, yeah, I, I just do cartoons mostly. Is ever, everyone in L.A. now? Of my kids, yes. Jim still lives in Akron, and we have a sister in Akron. And I have a sister in Arizona. But my immediate family, yeah, is all in. Do you go back to Akron often? Uh, I've only been back about once since my parents died. I think mm. I went back for a devotional. been a while. Is there any point you look at as like sort of like this was like the pinnacle of Devo or your experience in Devo, like sort of like when you guys were like at your peak as like a band and enjoying it the most? Uh, I think playing outside the walls of the Vatican, playing a show where, you know, it was like the old kind of stone, stone walls, like an old castle. that The stage was set right in front of it and all the lights were shining on that on the. I was like, oh my God, this is <laughs> this is a once in a lifetime thing. When was that? Uh the early 80s. I think it was still Freedom of Choice tour. Or it was uh we were doing the a tour for the first album in Japan, and they had every you know, everybody was really polite in Japan and they would sit in their seats 
clap like you know polite claps after the songs but they had seen a video come back johnny that we shot at the roxy where all the all the people in the audience came up on stage at the end of the song and so for the encore when we came out and did come back johnny they had seen the video and they knew what to do and when we got to the end of the song all these kids jumped up on stage and they would come up and kind of like do circles around us and <laughs> reach out and kind of touch us touch us and then pull their fingers back and giggle and i thought this is another one of those once in a lifetime things that's great <laughs> i I re recently watched uh your version of hey hey my my with neil young from human highway apparently in his book he said that he he heard the devo's first album and he loved that guitar and he mentioned it to uh elliot roberts who became our manager so I always wanted to thank him for that. Yeah, Jerry told the story about how Elliot Roberts basically leveraged uh, Saturday Night Live with saying, like, if you guys take Devo, I'll let Neil Young come on the show. And that he actually used... Probably. So that yeah, was pretty cool. They didn't, they didn't let new bands play on Saturday Night Live until us, you know? Yeah, and and, you, and the reception was so good, he probably, like, opened it up for, you know, the B-52s and whoever else came afterwards. Yeah. What was that? What was working with Neil Young like, by the way? Uh, you know, he's another one of those people I was in complete awe of and couldn't really sit down and talk to. So it was just like watching him from afar. Hmm. <laughs> well, while playing the Hey, Hey, My, My guitar riff. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. How much do you care about this whole Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing? Not at all. Well, there Not you go. at all. I mean, we could, I could go around and say, yeah, I'm in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but I'm still me. See, my problem with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is that I think it's stupid to have a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The bands, you know, my my enjoyment of album has nothing to do with like official. My my enjoyment, yeah, my enjoyment of bands, artists has nothing to do with whether they're officially, you know, recognized or not. But then it also pisses me off when like someone like Devo was not in there because I'm like, come on, <laughs> like you can't right. you can't put in all these other groups and not have not right. Have it's like there's some political element to the to the process of being inducted that I, just, I don't really care for. Yeah, or just ignorance or something. I don't know. Anyway, you're you're in my Hall of Fame, and that's what counts. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on and talking with me. Thanks for all the the great music you've made. Well, thank you. That's it for episode 84 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Bob Mothersbaugh for sharing so many insights and memories about his work in a great original rock band. Diva will be playing in Norway, Sweden, Finland, Germany, the UK, and Portugal in August. So that would be a lovely time to go on holiday in Northern Europe. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who decidedly is not a blockhead. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming events and episodes. Tickets are now on sale for my onstage Carol Pop conversation with actor-singer-director Michael Shannon at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois, July 31st. Go to evansonspace.com for more information and to buy tickets. Please share this episode subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.